1: Hello, and welcome to the New Books in Literature channel of the New Books Network. My name is Yakir Engleder, your host today. Today I have the honor to interview Fida Jiris, who is a Palestinian writer and editor who has written on life as a Palestinian in Israel and the West Bank. Fida was raised by Palestinian parents in Lebanon and later in Cyprus and then back in Israel to the West Bank. Therefore, Fida has a unique ability to look at the Palestinian community from both, from the inside as a native, but also from the outside, as an outsider, as someone who came to her land only later as an adult. Fida has published three collections of Arabic short stories depicting life in Palestine, one of which, Al-Hawajaj, a gentleman in English, was recently made into a theater production. The book, the book we'll focus today about, his name in Hebrew is Hakluv, or in English, The Cage, is a Hebrew ontology of selected short stories by Fida which are originally published in Arabic. The stories speak of the life of Palestinian Israel and in the West Bank. Through these snapshots of daily life, the book attempts to portray the complex realities of living on both sides of the divide, examining issues of politics, but also about identity, gender and poverty and the human toll we all pay by the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. This interview is my way to try to invite you, the listeners, not only to listen to dialogues and lectures about the conflict, but to speak and listen to the people from the area the people who are part of the conflict and suffering from the conflict, the Palestinians and the Israelis. Frida, thank you so much for joining the New Books Network. I'm really honored that you are with us.
0: Thank you so much, Yakir. I'm very happy to be with you today.
1: Thank you. So I want to start with, um, to ask you, um, your book, you wrote it in, in Arabic, The Short Stories. And then it is now translated, and it is in Hebrew. Um, And I wonder, when you wrote these stories, did you imagine that Israelis, Hebrew speakers, are going to read your stories? And how do you feel about that?
0: Uh, Okay, I began writing. uh, I have three collections of Arabic short stories, and I began writing uh, about 15 years ago. Uh, In that time, I published uh, three books. Definitely during the time of writing them, I did not even imagine that they would uh, be translated to Hebrew or uh, read by uh, Israelis. I was uh, simply writing them in Arabic. Even the thought of translation to English wasn't uh, on my mind at that point. Uh, I was simply uh, writing these stories uh, in my language and uh, publishing them in books. Uh, the stories also came from a background where I have always um, felt uh, like, a, like an alien or a stranger uh, to Israeli society, like most uh, Palestinians feel, to varying degrees. And uh, when uh, recently, only in the last few years, when I began to... Uh, it, it started out by speaking to Israeli uh, activists for peace and so on. And slowly, uh, it morphed as it always does uh, into my fiction work as well. Uh, when uh, Van Leer Institute expressed interest in translating uh, my stories for an anthology they were doing, I was uh, I was uh, cautious, and I was I didn't really know how to process that, uh, and I said yes. Uh, and even back then, when the book wasn't even mine, I mean, I had two uh, two stories in an anthology by Van Leer Institute called uh, Bilashon Kruta," Amputated Tongue. Uh, when I first received a copy of the book and I flicked through, I can read the uh, basic Hebrew, I flicked through and I found the stories and I found my name and I began to read some of the text. It was a very surreal feeling. Definitely not something I would ever have expected. When that road continued and Van Leer said, we want to do uh, a book uh, specifically for you, we want to do a collection of short stories only by you, and it's going to be uh, your book, Uh, I was, again, I was really floored. I was uh, shocked. It was nothing I would ever have expected. I always felt that as Palestinians and Israelis, uh, we lead very, very segregated lives uh, in the state. And uh, suddenly being able to for my voice to reach uh, Jewish Israelis was uh, very profound for me when I when I really paused to think about it. Uh, and here we are, and um, I, I really am hoping that as many people will get to read uh, this book as possible. And even more, I'm hoping to hear people's reactions. It would be very, very profound and interesting for me.
1: Thank you. Yes, I mean, something that we're going to speak in this podcast is I I felt as I was reading your your stories already in the ontology and now in your book that there is never one person to be blamed there is something much more nuanced much more soft um and maybe if it's okay fida I want to start with the idea of the stranger mm-hmm. because there is in many of your stories there is someone who is a stranger. I mean, it starts with um, the Hawaja about like a person who come clearly from Europe, um, and he come to learn about the Palestinian culture much before Israel is Israel. It looks at it, it happened much before, and then there is a clash between what does it mean to be at home and who is a stranger. And then later we have the Turkish who come and conquer the land, right? And they also try to force the Palestinian to serve in their military and who is a stranger. And and you end and you say, I think in the end of the stories, and someone will come again. Yes. And we know, right? And we know that the British will come and then the Israelis will come, or the Egyptian came and the Jordanian come what is stranger for you when you write these stories
0: stranger in reflecting i did not really uh, uh, realize this at the time or i think i wasn't fully conscious of this but uh, after the process of writing the stories and some years later the more i talk to people about them and especially after they were translated to hebrew i started to realize that perhaps subconsciously Uh, I am speaking about my own feeling of being a stranger uh, in this land wherever I go. And I will explain uh, a little bit. Uh, I was born uh, outside uh, Israel. My parents are from a village uh, in the Galilee called Fasuta, a small village. Uh, In 1970, my father was exiled uh, from Israel due to his uh, political uh, activism and work. Uh, We ended up living in Beirut and then in Cyprus, and it was only after the Oslo Accords that we were allowed uh, back. My father had then been in exile for 24 years. I came back at 22 years of age. I set foot in this country for the first time. I had no idea what to expect. I had grown up with Palestine in our home all the time. My father uh, worked as uh, the director of the Palestine Research Center in uh, Beirut. Uh, that belonged to the PLO. And, um, you know, all our lives uh, had been had been shaped by the question of Palestine and by the conflict. When I came back, I was so happy to come back to my parents' uh, birthplace, to their village. But I didn't really uh, anticipate in full what it meant to come back, first of all, to my own culture, having grown up outside it, in the village and so on. And second, uh, and more importantly, perhaps, what it meant to come back to live as a Palestinian in the state of Israel, particularly a Palestinian who had not grown up there and therefore didn't know, really didn't know anything about the system and, and the daily life there. I, For many, many years, I continued to feel like a stranger, despite all my efforts. And when people look at me, they think I've assimilated and integrated very well. I have, you know, large, obviously extended family. I have so many friends, so many networks, people I know. And yet, I have never really felt like I was able to completely fit in. Uh, some years after that, I went to Canada. Again, I was a stranger. But okay, that's a, that's not my country, so to speak. I came back here and I came back to Ramallah, hoping to find more belonging, uh, you know, among, let's say, uh, in a Palestinian atmosphere and so on. Again... For many reasons, again, I, okay, it's a little bit less here, but I still feel in so many aspects like a stranger. This theme of not really belonging anywhere, I started to explore in a lot more detail, I think even if subconsciously when I was writing, uh, what defines the belonging to a place? uh, And what defines your feeling that you uh, belong or you don't even though you may biologically or by family ancestry belong, and yet you haven't lived there? Uh, this belonging, does it change over time? Does it shift? What is our relation to uh, uh, strange people who come from outside and occupy and inhabit our country? Uh, and w- like you said, uh, Yakir, there have been so many of them in succession. So really this concept uh, of a stranger remains, it's its a thread in all my life. And I just uh, published a book in English, uh, Stranger in my own Land, that describes my and my family's uh, history. These stories in Hakluv, the book we're talking about today, really came uh, as snapshots from my own experience of living uh, in Israel and then in the West Bank uh, of daily life. And uh, I felt many times like I was in the role of the observer. I was absorbing many things uh, and reflecting on many things, and they started coming out as these uh, fictional stories.
1: Wow. I think about two things. Like, now I understand so much better the dialogue I mean in your short story The Cage, which is the name of the of this um of the book, a clue, there is a dialogue among two women in a taxi that they ask the question that you just said, is it better because they are in a checkpoint between Ramallah and Jerusalem. But yes. actually they can live in Jerusalem but they don't feel at home. And they live in Ramallah, but then the checkpoint makes them not to feel home. And then they said, was it better before the Oslo Accord, before the Palestinian Intifada, that we could drive in 10 minutes from Jerusalem? And then you end the story with a kid who just, a baby who just cried. And then, mm-hmm. but now it's cry on the other side because they just passed the, the checkpoint, right? Yes. Do I say yes. it right?
0: Yes. And yeah. Uh... I suppose the child's uh, crying on both sides really uh, reflects how I feel, uh, Yakir, that uh, Palestinians are really crying on both sides of the divide. Uh, wherever you go uh, in this country, there is really no relief. There isn't really one place in which you feel that you are treated as a fully equal and dignified uh, human being. Uh, and this is very painful. And the questions these women were asking were very real. Uh, thousands of Palestinians are forced to uh, live in Kufar Aqab, which is a suburb of uh, Jerusalem, in order to retain their Jerusalemite uh, residency. Yeah. Because of Israel's uh, you know, law that uh, for only for Palestinian residents, if they stay for more than, I don't know how long it is today, but it used to be seven years, then it was, I believe, two or something outside the city, they actually lose their residency. So these people found themselves, after the separation wall uh, was built and the checkpoint, they found themselves essentially living on the other side of the checkpoint. In other words, inside the, the territory of, uh, let's say, Ramallah. But they continued to hold their Jerusalem ID or Jerusalem residency because uh, according to the accords and the agreements, Kufr Aqab remained a suburb of Jerusalem. These people were essentially, are essentially caught in no man's land. They don't belong in full here or there. And this story tried to explain that, this this terrible uh, sense of uh, inner discord that these people have trying to navigate their lives and to answer the question, you know, why, why can I not move freely and live wherever I want, like any normal citizen in any normal country?
1: Is there also... And it's a question that I'm I'm reflecting for many years, and and I want your help mm-hmm. because the woman she says also I remember the old time like before I, I guess before I mean before the Oslo Accord but also before the the Intifada when we could drive in ten minutes. Mm-hmm. Is it also um, I don't know how to ask it nicely, but is it also in a way? a wish or a regret on the interfa. What's going on in the life of people that before they could drive in 10 minutes, but no one gave them any identity? I mean, no one looked at them as Palestinian. No one, I think, in Israel saw them. Now yeah. everyone see them maybe as an enemy, but now they need to drive for two hours each day to cross. Yes. What's going on in the narrative yeah.
0: Yes, I, there is a, a very powerful feeling among all Palestinians. I think by today, almost any Palestinian you ask will share this feeling. There is a huge feeling of letdown and uh, despair and frustration at the Oslo Accords themselves, at their outcome, at the so-called peace process, and the fact that it brought neither peace nor, nor uh, solutions nor anything really. Uh, and people, I think, are referring in this story, they are referring to a point in time when they could still almost hang on to some kind of hope before this whole process, before the Oslo Accords and so on, they could hang on to some kind of hope that perhaps something in future would happen uh, to make things right. Uh, The the important thing to understand here is that when the accords themselves were signed, uh, large parts of the people, myself included, who were not really privy to to all the details and the technicalities and so on of the accords, you know, we were not so, uh, you know, really immersed in them politically to understand really what was going on, looking at them as they were at face value, this is a process of peace and reconciliation, so many decades of hatred and conflict and so on are somehow going to come to an end, there will be a Palestinian state on the horizon, people's imagination ran wild, you know, there will be peace and security, there will be economic cooperation between the forthcoming Palestine and Israel, Uh, there will be peace, you know, we will somehow try to navigate forward in this country, but uh, it is much, much worse to have your hopes go so high and then to have them dashed than to have no hope at all. This is what I try to capture here. When the woman is is telling her uh, friend in the car, we used to be able to cross to Jerusalem in 10 minutes, she's really saying we were on the verge, we were still at a point when we, when there was some hope on the horizon. And now the, the checkpoint very much is not just physical, it's also psychological. Now there has been a, a cutoff, a severing, uh, an immense renewal of hostility and a complete breakdown and inability to move beyond this point Thank you as tragic as tragic as as that is but you know I mean I, I live in uh, Ramallah at the moment this is the reality we see and we grapple with every minute of every day
1: yeah yes and then it's even more complicated because um you are asking you go deeper and deeper like I felt sometimes in your in in reading the stories that it's almost like an onion. Like, Mm -hmm. I cried about, you know, the strangers who try to control. And then I said, like, okay. And then now there is a story not about strangers. There is a story about women and men. Yes. Yes. But then you make us to cry again. Because something about the way how you speak about the gender dynamic Mm -hmm. brings a lot of pain. And maybe we can... um, focus on very naive story Um, the story where there is a stranger again who yeah. come by a peace, uh, you know, one of these peace organizations to come and the teach NGO. yoga. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Just to teach, right. How to breathe. Like she come to yeah. teach the Palestinian woman how to be free. Yes. And, you yeah. know, I think many international people come to Palestine and they come to Israel to teach how to do peace. And they speak big words about MLK and Mahatma Gandhi. And, Mm -hmm. um, but then we have that woman that a month before someone came to teach them about sexuality. And Mm -hmm. she almost, as a director of the center, she almost lost all the center. And now someone come to teach about yoga. And this woman tried to understand what we and yoga, how should we breathe when we have kids at home? an angry husband because he cannot work, what's going lead us in this sensitive, very vulnerable, I think, um, walk between gender?
0: Yes. Um, Palestinian society is uh, traditional uh, in its gender uh, relations uh and you know the, it has specified roles i suppose like every other society you know for men and women uh, a lot of that obviously has been changing like in other countries around the world over the past uh you know few uh, decades uh you know with the advent of uh, technology and women working outside the home and more education and so on uh here i am really examining uh, the role i mean they happen to be women i chose them as women because women bear the brunt of so much that goes on here the woman does not just bear the brunt of the terrible uh, political and social catastrophe uh, that the palestinian people live under she also uh, is tasked with caring for the home and for the children and being a sounding board or a safety net for everybody, uh, and often having to uh, quell her own uh, needs, her own uh, uh, wants, or let's say her own uh, safety herself, in order to provide it to others. Women have, uh, Palestinian women, have been forced to be in very, very um, difficult and challenging, uh, terrible, terrible things really have been expected uh, of them, uh, really requiring superhuman strength, and in fact, it is no exaggeration to say there are probably some of the strongest uh, uh, women I have met. People whose children uh, children are in prison, uh, people whose husbands have died in the conflict, uh, people who don't know exactly where they're going to put the next meal from for their family. Uh, in my life in Ramallah, I observed a lot of these uh, these foreign, uh, you know, intervention programs that we have, and it makes me very, very, very upset. And it makes a lot of other Palestinians very upset as well, because there is, um, despite the the, the seeming uh, well-meaning, and I will be a, f- a bit frank or candid in, the, in my appraisal here, despite the so-called you know well-meaning uh, intentions and so on to relieve poverty, to relieve you know to provide sustainable uh, livelihoods and so on, the way we feel as Palestinians is all these organizations try to simply put a plaster on the wound without addressing the root cause of this wound in other words none of them are working actively to do anything to end the occupation which is the the source of this pain we're in instead they are saying here take this aspirin you know let's build you a small shop here where you can live from let's give you a little program here to teach you i don't know needlework or something let's come and you know teach you about uh, breastfeeding i mean this was a joke a few years ago you know this big ngo came and it was giving all this instruction to you know palestinian women about you know the benefits of breastfeeding and so on. Women, Palestinian women, have been breastfeeding for generations. So yeah. it's like, okay, what <laughs> what are you coming to teach us? You know, I mean, you know, <laughs> yes. what are you telling me here? It's something that you know that I'm already doing. Um, and there is a lot of talk uh, about you know sustainability and about uh, capacity building and about state building. There is no state. There isn't a state on the horizon. There isn't there isn't basic liberation from occupation. What are we talking about here? And so this mounting, you know, uh, uh, cynicism that Palestinians feel towards this. And I say this in the stories, one character is saying to the other, oh, we have NGOs for everything. We have NGOs for women and for children and for art and for culture. And this is true. You know, anything under the sun, they will simply pour some money into it in order to give some money to these poor beneficiaries and to keep them silent. And this is the the immense frustration that I was trying to reflect in this story, perhaps through, you know, black humor in that sense. The women are joking to each other. You know, this woman is talking about yin and yang. And one of the women has a son who has just been arrested. They can't afford a lawyer, arrested by the Israeli military. They can't afford a lawyer. Her husband is unemployed. She's worried about her other kids. And here she is in this room with a woman that's talking about inner peace, you know, and this, you know, this is what I was trying to capture uh, with this story, the, the surreal, surreal uh, world in, in which we live in this part of the world.
1: Thank you, Frida. And I wonder, as I continue to read the, the stories, I found myself that it's really hard to breathe. Yes. It's, right? It's really hard to breathe because for two reasons. one, there is no time to breathe. And I think about the story about the grandma that mm-hmm. she is very poor and like she's waking up at 5 a.m. or 4 a.m. to start making bread. And this is what she's doing all day um, to take care of the grandchildren and her husband and the men and everyone. Mm-hmm. And then she just fall into a deep sleep, hopefully, because she needs to wake up very soon. Mm-hmm. And I wonder, Fida where where is the amala where is the hope where is the breath that you find in uh, in life and you want to bring into the stories
0: hey, it's interesting you're asking that question now yakir because to be honest now uh, especially in the recent um, uh, events uh, here in the country the election of this new government for example and uh, the terrible Israel. Are on israel and the terrible spiral of violence we've had over the last, uh, I suppose, two years now. Uh, this year, in particular, in terms of statistics, a higher number of Palestinians have been killed uh, in the West Bank uh, than in any other year. Uh, right. So, really, they are the largest number. It has really, it's it's really breaking down completely. And any person who is following the news can see this. Uh, if I am to be painfully honest at this point in time, as I answer you this question, I can truthfully say I find it very difficult to garner any hope. However, having said that, I think subconsciously we find hope and we cling to it. Otherwise, I would not write. I would not be speaking to you today about this. I would not continue to find every Jewish and every Israeli person who will listen and go and speak to them. And nurture these relationships even though when there is immense pain involved um and i would not you know continue seeing my friends and we talk and we vent and we do all these things and at some points it all seems so unbelievably dark especially when everybody around you it's not just my own feeling everybody just now just before this i was sitting with two friends and three friends and one of them was saying nothing will change this will not it's not nothing will move forward you are working against that tide every single day and trying to, when you wake up in the morning, to find the reason for living, really, some days, because everything around you, I mean, the minute you wake up, you are pummeled by something in the news, and it just, from there, it just goes downhill until the rest of the day. Yeah. Uh, hope is found, I think, one of the most, most profound sources of hope for me is in finding like-minded people to speak to and to continue working. Because in any situation, when you're faced with something that's so formidable that you can't do anything about it, essentially what you have to do is find that small crack. Find that small crack and from which you can do something. Because doing something is at least better than just succumbing to all the pain, which would be a collective
1: uh, suicide in that sense. Thank you for saying that. Because um, And I think I really felt it because a lot of the figures in the stories Sometimes they don't even have the gift or the privilege to do something because it's so stuck, like in the checkpoint, for example, Mm -hmm. or when um, the group of people are sitting inside a taxi who drive like crazy and Mm -hmm. they just stuck, right, Mm -hmm. until an accident will happen at one point. Mm -hmm. And now I understand that maybe I didn't read well the short story about the grandma, Because maybe her life, at least she's doing constantly things. Yes. Um, Right? At least she is a grandma. She is bringing a next generation of Palestinian kids and she loves them. Mm -hmm.
0: She loves them. I'm also speaking about the the brunt that this takes on the person uh, in a daily life. The fact that, you know, people like these, for example, have never heard of something called the holiday. Or a vacation or you know things that other people take for granted people like this don't really have the time to sit and reflect about things as we do um this woman of this story is actually real she is one of the members of my extended family and uh, sometimes i could maybe catch her uh you know in in a quiet moment having a coffee or something and i would begin asking her about something about her life and i always felt there was a reluctance to speak Uh, There was a reluctance to answer my questions when I tried, you know, to ask her a little bit more about her life, her feelings and so on. The reason is that these feelings are too painful and this life has too much pain in it. And so uh, a lot of people, and I've seen this a lot, both among Palestinians in Israel and those here in the West Bank, uh, people will often drown their sorrows in work, if not in work, in just being busy all the time in being busy all the time because, you know, this is a psychological uh, mechanism as well. It's uh, if you're running away from something, the last thing you want is to sit down and reflect and think about it because it's so horrible that you are afraid that you will simply break down. Mm. Uh, And I felt this over and over um, in interviews that I did with my family members for my other book for Stranger in my own land. Sometimes I had to I had to stop the interviews. People broke down and uh, a couple of them have, uh, one of them has diabetes, he broke down, He. I was afraid because his sugar suddenly shot up, his sugar, li- I mean, you are talking about real, real and tangible, almost pain, and uh, people mask it in different ways. Uh, constant work and productivity can be one of those ways, as can be the other, the other extreme, the detachment from society, the constant cynicism, what's all this for, there's no point uh, and then people engage in, you know, destructive behavior in uh, drinking in uh, you know, abusing drugs and and so on. So we have all those social problems here, just like, you know, any people in any country. But here they are compounded by this terrible uh, reality that we are experiencing, that we live in for so many decades now with no end in sight.
1: Thank you, Fida. And it leads me to one of the stories where we have, um, we have Walid. Is sitting in jail in Israeli jail for like twenty years, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. he's now released. And you call the story "The Other Fences," the yes. Herot. Mm-hmm. and the only thing that gave some maybe hope to Walid in the prison, which is interesting because a prison it's a time that you can think a lot, and 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 I want to ask you from your experience, how Israeli prison influenced Palestinians because it's like, it's a place where, you know, they cannot do or they cannot run away from not thinking. And he has lama. He has, right, this woman that he knew as a child because he was arrested when, from the story when he's like 17 or 18 or something like that. Mm -hmm. And now she's a widow with five kids and he's even afraid to contact with her.
0: Yes, yes. So he leaves, so he has this hope. Uh, and I don't know if it's a hope as such. He has this recurrent dream uh, during his years in prison. He's in prison, I think, in the story for 20 or 25 years. Um, yes. and this is the the strength or the power of the social taboos. Uh, I explained somewhere in the story that even between him and himself, when he was thinking about her in prison, he would be ashamed. Uh, and I'm talking here about this, you know, young, you know, an adolescent basically when he was arrested uh, and about how, you know, obviously he's now in prison. So he's going through the levels of, you know, maturity, uh, of puberty and of maturity and so on. And so it's only natural that he would think about somebody he loves and, and uh, you know, And this thought process will continue regardless of where he is, if he's in prison or he's outside. But he feels the social taboo is so powerful to think of somebody when you are not married to them, for example, or, you know, that he feels ashamed even between him and himself. So, again, we have another wall, another fence here, his own fence. That is, you know, when he finally leaves the prison, uh, it's all he can think about. He wants to see this woman again. Uh, he clashes with the fences outside. Okay, he, has, he is in a traditional society. There is no meaning whatsoever for somebody to go and contact a widow. Uh, that he is not her cousin, he is not, let's say, related to her. He doesn't have, let's say, a social excuse or uh, you know, to go and see this woman or visit. Uh, and so, you know, he comes up against all these powerful fences, the fences of people's thinking. After... Thinking that he has left the prison, he comes up against the social fences. And here I speak about a very complex uh, uh, interplay between our own society and our own taboos, uh, as well as the added layer of the Israeli occupation and its uh, restraints and its terrible uh, uh, conditions that it imposes upon people. So, Jadrán and other fences, other walls, they are everywhere. They are within the individual themselves they are wrought upon by society and they are wrought on by the occupation uh going back yakir to what you said at the beginning about the onion there are layers
1: where do we go from here Fida as a writer as a writer how hey. do you what what or what is the position when you sit and uh, be, because when you sit and write I mean you you're reflecting, I mean it was a really beautiful like, it, it's it's such a human book, such humanistic.
0: Thank you.
1: Thank and you. so painful. Mm-hmm. and and honestly, as an Israeli who now live in, in in the United States, in a way I felt relief, oh, thanks God that I'm not anymore, you know, in a way Yes. yes. And I wonder you're writing now from Ramallah.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, how How do you walk as a writer?
0: Uh, between Sometimes I call it between the raindrops in the sense that uh, there's so much pummeling you every day. Some stuff you deliberately uh, choose not to engage with uh, and some stuff that rises to in your consciousness so much that you feel compelled uh, to write about it. This process of selection, first of all, is absolutely necessary because otherwise you could go crazy. Uh there, there are really too many stressors, too many at the same time, for you to be able to uh, exist while tackling them all. Uh, as a writer, I think in recent times, what has happened is I'm writing more and more about things that really, um, how do I say, really provoke me. Really, you know, the things sort of that most make me uh, uh, angry, upset, you know, uh, both internally in our own society. I have, you know, a lot of issues I want to write about and also, about the facets of the uh, occupation. Um, And as a writer, I think you are are privileged always because I think it's a double-edged sword. It's a privilege and it's also a curse because you are in a constant state of observation, whether you like it or not. That's just the way your brain operates. And that is ultimately what translates into these stories and these articles and these books. The state of observation almost allows you, at times, to look at something. I call it the fly on the wall syndrome. So you are looking at it almost like you are not part of the situation. You are able to detach yourself, even when you are in it, to detach yourself to almost be observing it as though you were an outsider. At the same time, you are extremely involved in it to the point where you can analyze and you know what's going on. That's why I call it a curse also, because this process never stops. It's almost like you can never be in any situation at which you can just interact with things superficially and move on. Everything uh, uh, leaves a mark. Everything is open to later reflection and interpretation. Uh, sometimes not even not voluntarily or willingly, you may find yourself thinking about a particular situation days later or weeks later, and it will come up in your writing. Uh, At the moment, how I navigate, I think, is, you know, I'm I'm promoting my books at the moment. I'm not doing too much writing these days, although I have a couple of articles here and there. Um, I think at the moment also I'm under the same shock, I would call it, as many other people that somehow we are just watching the situation around us and waiting to see what will transpire, hoping against hope that some ray of light will find its way through. Uh, But a lot of us are shell-shocked. I mean, following the violence, you know, the recent spates of violence and, you know, this uh, new elections and so on, a lot of us, I feel now, are in a state where we are just staring into space uh, so to speak. And um, I think for the writing, what this usually does, it, it brings about a delayed reaction later, not not while you are actually experiencing this.
1: Fida, I just want to remind the, the, um, the listeners that also you just published a book in English. Inshallah, we're going to do hopefully another podcast about that. Can you just say, please, the title of the book in English?
0: Yes, of course. It's called The Stranger in My Own Land. Uh, It's published by Hearst uh, in London in partnership with uh, Oxford University Press in the States. And uh, it was released in October, uh, just a month ago.
1: As we say, congratulations, Masalto. Um, Thank you. Fida, thank you so much for coming to the New Books Network. It's a real gift to listen and to read your stories.
0: Thank you very much, uh, Yakira. I'm very happy uh, to speak with you today. Thank you with all my heart.